Hey, good morning. My name is Kevin, and today's scripture reading is from James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the, the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers, for every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before I get into the word today, uh, I just want to speak to our church honestly and from my heart for a moment. Uh, you know, I struggled a lot this past week to come up with words to address some of the things that are going on in our nation right now. And then I struggled with the idea of even trying to put into words what I think we need to hear as a church. Because I think we're at a point where words really don't feel adequate anymore. As you know, uh, this past Wednesday was a painful day for many in our city and nation uh, as a grand jury reached its verdict on the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor, a case that has sparked countless protests and riots in our city and all over the country for the past six months. Now, I've been asked by many well-intentioned people this past week where our church stands on Breonna Taylor. And that question in and of itself is very jarring for me because it treats the death of an innocent woman, a woman created in the image of God, worthy of dignity, respect, and empathy as an issue or a position to take sides on. Like, how did we get to this point? Now, let me be clear. As Jesus followers, we do not pledge allegiance to a political party. In fact, it would be a huge problem if our church were ever perfectly aligned with one political party. And my hope is that citizens would be a place where people on all sides of the political spectrum would find a home and feel seen and heard and valued. That being said, I do not believe that means we should be silent in the face of injustice and suffering. The church should be the loudest voice in the face of injustice and suffering. And I understand how propaganda works. I understand how politics work. I understand that people throughout history have co-opted narratives for their own agenda and benefit. I get it. But let me implore all of you this morning. As followers of Jesus, we were never called to fight for a position. We were never called to fight to be right for the sake of being right. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul is crystal clear. He says, weep with those who weep, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Weep with those who weep. And there is an entire community weeping right now. 
And what so many of us who claim to live by this word are doing, I'm afraid is the exact opposite of what this word calls us to do. We're throwing logic and alternative perspectives and condemnation at a people who are in pain. This, friends, is not the love that Jesus calls us to. And I don't want to go much further than that because the sermon next week is on being slow to speak and quick to listen. And I don't want to end up preaching that sermon right now. But I wanted to address this today because I think this is a critical time for our church. That amidst such divisiveness in our nation, that we would be united in our call to love our neighbors as ourselves, even if that means dying to our own comfort and convenience. And so with that, let me say a quick prayer before we dive into the word. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for this great reminder uh, that we are a broken people. We need your love, wisdom, and guidance as we navigate this present moment. We ask for your comfort and peace upon our black brothers and sisters. And we pray that as a church, we would defend before we demonize, that we would seek people over positions and compassion over correctness. We fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, last week we launched a new sermon series through the book of James called The Way of Faith. And we're calling it that because I think James is a book that reminds us that faith is so much more than theology, it's more than head knowledge, it's more than a feeling, it's a way of life. And I think the modern church, especially here in the West, in our desire to move away from anything that even sniffs of legalism or works-based righteousness, has completely swung the other direction and convinced ourselves that following Jesus is supposed to be easy. And yet nothing Jesus ever taught was easy. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says some really difficult things. He says it's not just the murderers who will be judged, but anyone who's even angry with another person will be subject to judgment. He says things like, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Or one of my favorites, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I mean, who does that? But you see, Jesus didn't come into this world to give us a nice pep talk and tell us things we wanted to hear. No, he came into this world to transform us from the inside out, to show us a different way of being. And echoes of the Sermon on the Mount are found all throughout the book of James. You know, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. We looked at that verse last week. Sounds very similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Or another verse we looked at last week, James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Sounds very similar to Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And I say this for us to remember that as uncomfortable as some of this stuff is going to be for us to hear, what James is teaching us is dead in line with what Jesus himself taught. Okay? So last week, we talked about what it looks like to persevere in the midst of trials in this life. That it's not so much about asking God to fix our problems, but rather asking God to fix our perspective. That the issue isn't somewhere out there, but it's in here. 
Now, the reason this is so much easier said than done is that we as human beings are extremely susceptible to deception. If you don't believe me, just browse through your social media feed. We are living in an age of misinformation, alternative facts, where nobody knows the difference between truth and lie, where there's a new conspiracy theory that goes viral every day. And to be honest, I don't know about you, but it's exhausting trying to figure out what's real and what's fake anymore. You know, the other day I was watching this documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. That's all about the dangers and ethical concerns around social media usage. Uh, if you haven't watched it, uh, it'll definitely make you want to throw your phone away immediately. Uh, I obviously couldn't do that because I had to post about the documentary on Instagram. Uh, but the whole premise of the documentary is that social media is essentially undermining our collective sense of truth and reality that it is manipulating us to believe certain things about the world, certain things about ourselves that aren't always entirely true. And the first thing I thought of when I was watching the movie uh, was the book 1984 by George Orwell uh, that was published back in 1949. Uh, some of you probably read that in high school. And it basically paints a picture of this dystopian world where everyone lives under the watchful eye of a big brother government that not only controls the actions of its people, but also seeks to manipulate reality to control their thoughts. And I realized watching that movie that we're actually living in that world now. And there have been countless studies done over the past few years trying to make sense of this phenomenon of misinformation. And what they're finding is that lies tend to spread online at an alarming rate, particularly in times of crises. Because it makes sense, right? It's precisely when we are afraid, uncertain, and confused that we are the most susceptible to deception. We often wonder, how is it possible that people can believe such far-fetched things? Trust me, people can believe a lot of things when they're afraid. You know, there was an article put out by NPR a few months ago that said 2020 has birthed the biggest outbreak of misinformation in the history of the internet. And this makes total sense because all of us are scared out of our minds right now. Like all of us are willing to believe anything that will make us feel a little more secure. And this is why James warns his readers in verse 16, don't be deceived. He's speaking to believers who've been scattered, who are in the midst of persecution and suffering. And it's as though he's saying, when things get hard, when life punches you in the face, this is when the truth matters most. And we're going to answer three questions today. Who is prone to deception? What does deception look like? And how do we fight it? Okay, who is prone to it? What does it look like? And how do we fight it? Take a look with me at verse 9. It says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. In other words, if you're poor and going through tough times, you should take pride in your high position. If you're rich and crushing it in life, you should take pride in your low position. And this is how the gospel works. It uplifts the lowly and humbles the proud. It's the great equalizer of all people. It tells people who have nothing, who've been rejected, who've experienced failure and disappointment, that they're deeply loved and valued by the creator of the universe. But it also tells those who are on top, those who enjoy good health 
and good family and good fortune that this life is fleeting, that it will pass away like a wildflower. And the implication here is that whether you are rich or poor, everyone can be deceived, that all people are prone to believe the lie that you are nothing more than the sum of your accomplishments or the sum of your failures. And this is one of those things that is so ingrained in us, we can't even believe it's a lie. In fact, there are lies we have learned so well that they feel more true than the truth does. Like when the lottery uh, was at one billion a few years ago, I was like, Lord, I know money is fleeting. I know it's a lie that money can buy happiness. But can I just win so I can see for myself? Like I bought like 20 tickets that year, right? Because deep down inside, no matter how many stories we read about people who've reached the pinnacle of their career, who go on epic vacations, who live in beautiful mansions, and yet who feel more alone and empty than they've ever felt, there's still a part of us that says, but it can't be a lie, right? Because success and fame and wealth does equate to happiness in this life, doesn't it? And so we get on this rat race to pad the resume, to perform and achieve and succeed, to secure something that 2020 has taught us was never secure to begin with. Our beauty will fade away. Our wealth will fade away. Our possessions and our careers will fade away. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So the first thing James wants us to recognize is that all of us are prone to deception, that both adversity and prosperity are tests that when handled properly can either move us toward growth and maturity, toward the crown of life promised in verse 12, or when handled poorly can deceive us and lead us to sin and death, okay? So number one, who is prone to deception? All of us. And number two, what does deception look like? How does it work? Now, James wants to make one thing very clear, that God himself does not deceive. Temptation cannot come from God because it is not in his nature. Listen to what it says in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, you may be thinking, well, I knew that already. But I think James makes a point of it because he knows our natural instinct as human beings is to always believe somebody else is to blame for our issues. It's always someone else's fault, never our own. When we lash out at our loved ones, it's always because they pushed us to the brink. When we perpetually hate our job, it's always because our boss or our coworkers are difficult. When we lose a friendship, it's always the other person's fault. When we fall back into old habits or addictions, it's always because someone else made us this way. And for many of us, that someone is God himself. God, I wouldn't be like this if you had made my life easier. God, I wouldn't be like this if you had given me better parents. God, I wouldn't be like this if I were in better life circumstances. And we believe that God is behind all the pain and evil we experience in this life. And James says, don't be deceived. Yes, God in his love will allow us to face temptation. Yes, God in his love will often bring us to places where temptation is inevitable. Parenthood, work, leadership, relationships. But when we give in to those temptations, the only one to blame is ourselves. 
You know, a lot of people like to say that it was God who brought evil into this world by putting a tree in the middle of the garden and then telling Adam and Eve they couldn't eat from it. Like, why would God tease them like that? If he'd never done that, maybe sin would have never entered the picture. In other words, if God had just left us alone and let us be, things would be a lot better. But you see, that's exactly why God put the tree in the garden, to remind us that we need him, that he's the creator and we are the creation, that we don't get to tell him what's good for us and what's not. And so putting the tree there was God saying, will you trust me or will you try to be your own God? And what we find in our text today in verses 14 and 15 is basically an explanation of what happened in Genesis 3. James says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is exactly the progression we see in the garden. Adam and Eve don't just go straight to eating the fruit. No, it begins with a subtle seed of deception. Listen to what it says in Genesis 3. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice how subtle that deception is. Did God really say that? You sure God really has your best interests in mind? No, you won't die. You'll just become like God. Isn't that what you want? And the serpent does exactly what James warns against here in chapter 1. It seduces and entices them with their own evil desires. And soon what begins as a small seed of deception gives birth to sin that grows and grows and ultimately leads to death. And the Greek word translated evil desires in verse 14 is kind of an unfortunate translation because it's not saying that the desire itself is evil or bad. It's saying that we desire things too badly, that we over-desire, that we confuse the gifts with the giver, that we try to use created things to fill the void in our hearts only God can fill. And James is saying, when we do that, we allow sin to take hold of us and ultimately destroy us. And so from Genesis 3 on, that has been the cycle of sin that has defined the story of humankind. A subtle lie gets planted in our minds. We feed that lie. We nurture it. We double down on it. And then like a virus, it never just stays put. It never just leaves you as you are. It begins to grow and spread and multiply. And it will not rest until it has wreaked havoc on your entire life. Until you get to the point where you cannot distinguish it from the truth. You think your verbal outburst on your spouse the other day just came out of nowhere? No, it started with something small in the heart. It started with a subtle lie that plays on your desire, a lie that says your job defines you. And so the moment you start slipping up at work, you get written up by your boss, is the moment you start struggling with your self-worth. 
So then you come home anxious and insecure and on edge, and then you walk in the door and your husband or wife makes a super minor remark about how you're late all the time, and to you, that is further confirmation of what you've been hearing at work all week long, of the narrative you've replayed in your mind, and now you're angry. It feels like it's you against the world. And so you start thinking about all the times you felt unsupported and undermined at home and you start blaming your spouse for your failures at work and then that resentment and bitterness continues to fester and fester until it can't be contained any longer and you finally burst. Isn't this how temptation and sin always works? You know, there was a book published in 2014 called The Stories We Tell Ourselves that talks about this exact phenomenon. How we as human beings are expert storytellers who create these elaborate narratives in our minds, who invent baseless suspicions about the people in our lives, sometimes the people who love us the most, about their motives and their intentions. And we allow these stories to grow in power inside our minds until we end up paying a huge price for them later. You know, temptation at its inception can feel very harmless. Because again, desire in and of itself is not bad. God created us with desires, with wants, with longings. Like it's not bad to want to do well at work. It's not bad to want to provide for your family. It's not bad to want a significant other. But the moment we buy into the lie that these things can save us and satisfy our deepest longings is the moment we put ourselves on a road that leads to destruction. Well, so what do we do about it? Well, which brings me to the final point. How do we fight deception? Right? How do we fight it? Well, verses 16 and 17 tell us, it says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. At the end of the day, you can only fight lies with the truth. And James says, in times when we are confronted with temptation, we must remember the truth of who God is, that He is sovereign, that He is dependable, and that He is gracious. Well, how do we know that's not just another lie? because God proved it to be true by sending His one and only Son to live the life we couldn't live and die the death we should have died. You know, that NPR article I referenced earlier included a little how-to guide on, the preventing, on preventing the spread of misinformation online. And one of the things it mentions is that all of us in 2020 need to get into the habit of fact-checking everything. That before we share anything on social media, we should all pause and ask, what is the source of the article I'm about to share? Is that source reliable? How do I know it's reliable? What data do I have that backs up what the source is saying? And friends, we have all the data we need to believe that our God is who He says He is. In verse 18 it says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. John 1.1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is the word of truth. 
and it is through him that the cycle of sin and death was broken, and it is only in him and through his perfect life and sacrificial death that we have the power to resist temptation today. You see, the first thing that had to happen uh, to Jesus after he was baptized, before his professional ministry began, was that he had to go into the wilderness where he was tempted. And it says in Matthew 4.1 that the Spirit of God led him there because Jesus had to pass the test that Adam could not. And the devil came to him in the same way he came to Adam and Eve. He went to Jesus in his most vulnerable state at his weakest moment when he was tired and hungry and he tried to subtly manipulate his desire. He said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you're hungry, you should eat. But rather than give in to his desire, Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, as much as I want to eat, I will not let that desire control me. And three times he resists temptation, and each time the way he does it is by speaking the truth of God's word and placing his trust in the Father's hand. And this is how, when faced with the biggest test of all, when he looked up and saw the cross of Calvary before him, Jesus was able to say, not my will, but yours be done. This, friends, is our guarantee that we can resist every temptation in this life, not by our own strength, but because we are united to Christ in his life and death. Brothers and sisters, this is a season when all of us are very susceptible to deception. This quarantine, this year, is the perfect breeding ground for the enemy to plant lies in our heads that are destroying our relationships and causing us to self-doubt, to self-medicate, and to seek solutions that will hurt us more than help us. And it's precisely because lies tend to spread much faster during times of crisis that we need to be extra vigilant about fact-checking the stories we tell ourselves. That in our moments of greatest uncertainty, fear, and despair, that we would run to the truth of who God is. That he's a good father who loves and cherishes us. A father who desires to lavish good gifts on his children. A father who will stop at nothing to bring us back to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so weak and prone to deception. Every day we're bombarded with so many lies about ourselves and others that we allow to take control of our hearts and our lives. And this morning we ask that the truth of who you are and who we are in you would resonate deep within our souls and give us the power to resist the many temptations we will face in the days to come. We thank you for your kindness and mercy that watches over us. May you be exalted and glorified in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.